السلام Today's surah is Surah Al-Shams. It's also known as Al-Shams Surah but more famously as Surah Al-Shams. It's a Makkan surah, one of the earliest surahs revealed during the early part of the Prophet Wasallam's mission in Mecca. And some narrations suggest, well, uh, according to the order and the tartib of the Qur'an, it's believed that this was actually the 26th surah to be revealed after Surah Al-Qadr and before Surah Al-Buruj. I'll quickly read through the Arabic and the and provide a translation, and then inshallah we'll discuss the verses of the surah in some detail. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Washamsi wa duhaha. By the sun with its mid morning brightness. Walqamari idha talaha. By the moon, when it follows the sun. وَالنَّهَارِ إِذَا جَلَّاهَا By the day, when it reveals it. وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا يَخْشَاهَا By the night, when it enshrouds it. وَالسَّمَاءِ وَمَا بَنَاهَا By the sky. And him who built it. By the earth. And him who spread it. By the soul. And him by him who proportioned it. Then he inspired it to its 
transgression and its God consciousness. Indeed, has succeeded he who allows the soul to flourish. And indeed, has lost he who stunts the growth of the soul. Thamud rejected because of its transgression, because of its rebellion. When its most wretched one rose, فَقَالَ لَهُمْ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ So the Messenger of Allah said to them, نَاقَةَ اللَّهِ وَسُقِيَاهَا The she-camel of Allah. Beware of the she-camel of Allah and beware its drink. فَكَذَّبُوهُ فَعَقَرُوهَا So they rejected it. فَعَقَرُوهَا So they hamstrung it. فَدَمْدَمَ عَلَيْهِمْ رَبُّهُمْ بِذَنْبِهِمْ فَسَوَّاهَا So their Lord crushed them because of their sin. And he made it equal to all of them. And he does not fear its consequence. That's a simple translation of the verses. There are, in fact, two parts of the surah. In the first, Allah speaks mainly about the soul and its wickedness and righteousness, its piety and virtue, in contrast to its transgression and sinfulness. And this is this topic of the soul, the nafs, is preceded by a number of oaths that Allah takes. And then the second part of the surah <coughs> is concerned with relating a very brief account of the people of Thamud to whom the Prophet Salih was sent. But the two parts are still very delicately linked and one leads to the other. Let me begin the explanation of the actual verses and then inshallah we'll discuss some of the more detailed aspects in a moment. First of all, Allah swears by a number of things, including himself. And having started from the end of the Qur'an, we've already seen this in a number of different surahs. The last surah, وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا يَغْشَى وَالنَّهَارِ إِذَا تَجَلَّى And prior to that, وَالضُحَى وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا سَجَى So, throughout the Qur'an, Allah swears by a number of objects in His creation, especially at the beginning of the surahs. And this is in order to attract 
and arrest the attention of the listener and the reader and to make him reflect and think. And in reality, the, the, the oaths that Allah takes, they aren't random. Again, in a very subtle and delicate manner. There is a relationship between the oath that Allah takes and the message that's delivered immediately thereafter. So here in the surah also, Allah swears by a number of objects in his creation and ultimately Allah also swears by himself. So first of all, وَالشَّمْسِ وَضُحَاهَا By the sun with its mid-morning brightness. The Qur'an was revealed by Allah as a lasting message, a universal message, appropriate for all ages, all peoples, all lands at all times. And the Qur'an is such a well, such a spring of wisdom, of knowledge, of inspiration, that a simple reader of the Qur'an can appreciate the beauty of many of its verses. And an erudite scholar can also appreciate the beauty of the verses of the Qur'an. But when it comes to inviting people to reflect on, the sur- on their surroundings, to reflect on the universe, to reflect on natural phenomena, to reflect on themselves. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has kept the message beautifully simple. These phenomena that Allah invites the listeners and the readers to reflect on and ponder ponder over are not exclusive to scientists or scholars. Or to city dwellers. They're applicable to everybody. The night, the day, the sun, the moon, the sky, the earth, the stars. And these are phenomena. These are natural displays to which we are instinctively attracted. Despite the scorching heat of the sun. And its brightness to such a degree that we can't stare at it directly. We bask in its warmth and its glory. We bask in its warmth. We enjoy its light and heat. And we marvel at the sun. Similar to the moon, the sky, the stars, the whole earth. We are drawn and attracted to these natural phenomena. And in fact, we, we attempt to feel at one with nature. So these verses of the Holy Qur'an, they were appreciated by the Bedouin in the desert, by the dwellers in the city, by simple folk, by shepherds, as well as by scholars. And even by the Anbiya, the Prophets of Allah. So here again, وَالشَّمْسِ وَضُحَاهَا And sometimes the greatest truths are... well. In fact, the greatest truths are the simplest truths. And some of Allah's blessings are, the greatest blessings are the simplest of all blessings. Like the Kaaba of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the house of Allah, 
It's the Kaaba. It's the house of Allah. One would imagine it to be the grandest, the most decorated, the most plush. And yet, it's magnificent in its simplicity, just like water is vital, beautiful, and grand in its simplicity. And similarly, the signs of Allah in the Holy Qur'an, which he invites us to reflect on and ponder over, are at one and the same time the simplest, the most easily accessible, the most easily observed and understood, and yet at the same time the, the greatest and the most complex. By the sun and its mid-morning brightness. By the moon when it follows the sun. And the meaning of following the sun is that we have two planetary bodies around the earth. Two major planetary bodies that we can see. Planetary in the sense that heavenly. Otherwise, of course, the sun is a star and the moon is a natural satellite. But in our everyday observation, around the earth, apart from the distant planets which appear simply as stars and the distant stars which are minute in our view and observation the two greatest heavenly bodies that we see are the sun and the moon and the sun takes precedence it's larger, it provides heat it gives its light and the moon is in a way subservient to the sun it follows the sun in every way. It doesn't have its own light. It draws its light from the sun itself. And in that way it follows the sun. Furthermore, the sun rises and sets and provides light during the day. But the moon also rises and sets and it provides light, albeit faint, during the night. So in every way, the moon follows the sun. And we could expand on this. In fact, if you were to make the month, lunar monthly calculations of the moonrises and moonsets, sunrises and sunsets, and you worked out the different phases of the moon and the different dates of the lunar month, you would see an amazing pattern of the moon following the sun in its rising, setting, and in its synchrony with the sun. So in every way, the moon follows the sun. وَالشَّمْسِ وَضُحَاهَا وَالْقَمَرِ إِذَا تَلَاهَا By the moon and its mid-morning... By the sun and its mid-morning brightness. By the moon when it follows the sun. وَالنَّهَارِ إِذَا جَلَّاهَا By the day when it reveals it. Now, this means the earth when it reveals everything that we see, apart from artificial lighting, in a natural setting, there is piercing darkness. And then when the sun rises and the darkness clears, the beauty of the earth is revealed in all its glory. So, by the day when it reveals the earth, وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا يَغْشَاهَا By the night, when it envelops and enshrouds 
and wraps up the earth in its darkness. These are four things so far on which Allah has sworn. And they are all related to the phenomena of night, day, light and heat. The sun, the moon, the night and the day. I've already discussed these four things in the tafsir of Surah Al-Layl wal-Layl idha yakhsha and before that in the tafsir of Surah Al-Duha wal-Duha wal-Layl idha saja. So I won't repeat myself, refer to the discussion then. But it is somewhat detailed and as I explained, we may think nothing of the night and the day and the sun and the moon. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, وَمِنْ آيَاتِهِ خَلْقُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ And amongst his signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth. And in various verses, Allah has spoken about the alternating of the night and day. How that in itself is a sign. How our sleep, وَمِنْ آيَاتِهِ مَنَامُكُمْ بِاللَّيْلِ How our sleep at night in itself is actually one of the signs of Allah. And our working and seeking Allah's sustenance during the day is a sign of Allah How can our sleeping at night in itself rest be a sign of Allah? Again, the more you look, the more you study, how our circadian clock, how our inner body clock is in sync with the moon, with the sun, with the rays of the sun, with the night and day. How our body works in tune with the natural settings around us. A lot of these things we used to regard as being folklore, but as, and in fact people would dismiss them. And I've given an example of certain herbal remedies, which people traditionally used to say that these are effective, these plants should be picked only on certain days of the, of the month, of the lunar month. And of late people were dismissing these ideas rather contemptuously saying this is this is old these are old folklores folk tales and yet we've now discovered that indeed these plants their healing properties are actually connected to lunar rays so depending on the day of the lunar month the lunar month, the uh, rays of the moon actually have a varying effect depend on these plants and their healing properties on different lunar dates of the month. So, people before would appreciate nature in all its glory and beauty. Even Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, those of you who have attended the commentary of Sahih al-Bukhari at the Jid al-Sarih, when we were doing Kitab al-Tahajjid, 
I explained in thorough detail, including giving precise time, well, uh, approximate, not precise, but as close as we could get, timings of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and how his whole day was in tune with nature. Rasulullah alayhi salatu wa salam would rest at night. He would return home after Isha Salah. Unless he was preoccupied in the affairs of the Ummah, only then would he remain awake. Otherwise, as the wives, radiyallahu anhunna, inform us, he would return home. If he needed to discuss anything with the family, he would speak to them, he would do so. Otherwise, he would immediately retire to bed. And that's immediately after Isha Salah. And then he would rise in the middle of the night for Tahajj. And his whole life, his tasbih, his dhikr, his times of rest, his times of eating, all of these things were in tune with nature. His du'as in the morning and evening reflected nature. When he woke up for Tahajj, he would rise and he would recite the verses of the Holy Quran. Inna fi khalq samawati wal ardi wa ikhtilaf al-layl wa nahar la ayat li'ul al-albab. Verily, in the creation of the heavens and the earth, in, in the creation of the heavens and the earth, and in the alternating of the night and day, that same message which I was speaking of earlier. There are signs for those who possess intelligence. And the ulama have beautifully explained that if throughout the Holy Qur'an, Allah repeatedly says, these are the signs, who takes heed? Who pays attention? Who is admonished? And does not take heed except those who possess intelligence. These are signs for those who know. These are signs for people of the world. So throughout the Qur'an, Allah speaks about His signs being signs, being an admonition, being an inspiration and a lesson for people of intelligence. So the ulama have said, even though these signs are so simple, if you are unable to appreciate their beauty or their depth and their wisdom, then do not question the signs or the Qur'an of Allah, rather question your own intelligence and ability. Because as Allah says, indeed these are signs for those who possess intelligence. But as I said, I've spoken about these signs of night and day and sun and moon in the previous surahs to refer to that discussion. Let's continue. After swearing on the, na- on the sun, the moon, the night, and the day, Allah Azza wa further says, وَالسَّمَاءِ وَمَا بَنَاهَا By the sky. وَمَا بَنَاهَا And he who created it. He who built it. Allah Azza wa He's swearing by himself. وَالْأَرْضِ وَمَا طَحَاهَا By the earth. And by him, Allah, who spread it. So, so far these are six oaths. The sun, the moon, the day, the night, and Allah Azza wa Twice. And now is the final oath. وَنَفْسٍ وَمَا سَوَّاهَا And here Allah Azza wa expands the oath with a further comment. وَنَفْسٍ وَمَا سَوَّاهَا By the soul, 
And again by himself, Allah says, وَنَفْسِ By the soul, وَمَا سَوَّاهَا And by him who proportioned it, who fashioned the soul. And then having fashioned, so these are the oaths. So what's the message after this? But there's one more thing. Having sworn by the soul and by himself who created and proportioned and fashioned and molded that soul, Allah adds, فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا One addition to the creation of the soul was that Allah Azza wa Jal أَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspired or cast a message, cast a sense in the soul of what? What did Allah cast a sense into our soul from the very beginning of creation? Fujuraha wa taqwaha. The soul's ability to distinguish between truth and falsehood. The soul's ability to discern corruption and transgression from virtue and righteousness. The soul's ability to detect and see and realize and recognize the fear of Allah, his taqwa, consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and in contrast, sin, transgression, rebellion, and waywardness. Conscience. Our conscience is part and parcel of our soul, our nafs. Our ability to distinguish between falsehood and truth is part of our instinct. It's actually part of the DNA of our nafs, our very soul. So these are the oaths. By the soul and by him who proportioned it and then who inspired it, who cast in it the sense of fujur, its transgression, and its taqwa, its consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why do I translate consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as taqwa? I'll explain in a few minutes. These are the oaths. So what is that great message that Allah wishes to deliver? After having sworn by the sun and its mid-morning brightness, the moon when it follows the sun, the day when it reveals the beauty and splendor of the earth, the night when it casts its veil over the earth and enshrouds it. After having sworn by himself and the sky, after having sworn by the earth, and himself who created it. And now, after having sworn by himself, uh, by the nafs, and himself again who created it. So these are the oaths. What is that great and important message that Allah wishes to deliver to us after all of these immense oaths? The message is, قَدْ أَفْلَحُ مَنْ زَكَّاهَا وَقَدْ خَابَ مَنْ Indeed, has succeeded he who, I'll give a common translation for now, has succeeded he who, zakkahu, purifies the soul. 
وقد خاب and indeed has lost he من دساها who corrupts the soul now that's a common translation so I'll suffice with that for now but I'll give you a more detailed understanding of the words دسيه and دسكيه so this is that great message now how important is this message In my humble opinion, this whole surah is about the nafs, the soul. And its impact not only on the individual, but on the whole of society. This is why the latter part of the surah is deeply connected. If one nafs is good, it has an effect on others. If one soul is corrupt, it has an effect on others. Individual souls that are good and pure create a good and pure society. Individual souls that are corrupt ultimately create a corrupt society. And what happens? As happen, what happens with a corrupt society? As happened with the people of the world, to whom Allah sent Salih alayhi salam which Allah refers to at the end of the surah. That's the connection. So the whole surah is about the nafs, and the righteousness and piety and virtue of the nafs, and in contrast its transgression, its sin, its waywardness, and its rebellion. So let's look at the nafs. Allah says, وَنَفْسٍ وَمَا سَوَّاهَا فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا قَدَ فْلَحْ مَنْ زَكَّاهَا وَقَدَ خَابَ مَنْ دَسَّاهَا Indeed. By the nafs, by the soul, and by him who proportioned it, who molded it, who fashioned it. In fact, who perfected it. And then having molded it, fashioned it, Allah inspired to the soul its fujur, its transgression, its sinfulness, as well as its piety and its consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This doesn't mean that Allah guided us to both sin and virtue no in fact in the previous surah to this which we haven't done yet but inshallah which we will do next month Allah says that and we guided him to the two paths in surah al-balad That we guided him to the two paths. And what are the two paths? Good and bad. Good and evil. Virtue and sin. The same thing. Fujur and taqwa. Transgression or taqwa. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has already guided us to that. The meaning of guiding us is not to in lead us to both sin and virtue, but that Allah has given us that innate ability to distinguish between truth and falsehood. We have a conscience. We have an inner voice. Now, how do we understand the nafs, the soul? What is the soul? Ultimately, the soul is a spirit. And as Allah says in Surah Al-Isra, وَيَسَلُونَكَ عَنِ الرُّوحِ قُلِ الرُّوحِ مِنْ أَمْرِ رَبِّي وَمَا أُتِيتُمْ مِنِ الْعِلْمِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا 
And they ask you about the Spirit. Say, the Spirit is a matter of my Lord. Is of the affair of my Lord. And you have not been given except very little knowledge. The reality of the Spirit is beyond our comprehension. No matter how advanced we may become technologically and scientifically, we will never be able to truly fathom and truly understand the nafs, the ruh, the spirit, the soul, and its reality. We believe it. We accept it. We live it. In fact, ultimately, we are only arwah and spirits. That is the essence of life. And that's why Allah says, Indeed, successful is he, has succeeded he. Who? Who has a brilliant mind? Who has a beautiful body? Who has much wealth and belongings? No. Indeed, has succeeded he. True success both in this dunya and in the akhirah, in this world and in the next world, in this first life as well as the second life, true success, true salvation, true joy and happiness and bliss, ultimately is only of the goodness of the ruh and the nafs. And indeed has lost he who corrupts the soul. Why? Why is why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deliver such a strong message that the success, ultimate success, is the purity of the soul and ultimate destruction and loss is the corruption of the soul and the ruh of the spirit. Because ultimately that's all we are. We are only spirits. Don't misunderstand. I'm not denying our physical presence. But thing I wish to point out is, who are we ultimately? Who are we? Are we our bodies? Are we our minds? We're not. Ultimately, we are only spirits. The body is a cage. It's a carriage. It's a wrapping. Did we or didn't we exist before we were born, before we were conceived in our mother's wombs? Did we or didn't we exist? Did we exist before our before we took on a body? Before we were enclosed in a body? Did we or didn't we exist? Of course we existed. As a ruh, as a spirit. The spirit was blown into the body. When we will die, and this body will disintegrate, the bones will dissolve, disintegrate. When this body perishes, when we die, when all of our limbs and organs fail, when our brain fails and stops working, when we disintegrate, do we cease to exist? Or do we continue to another life? 
That means that we are not our bodies. We may be caged inside our bodies, but we are not our bodies. Are we our minds? No. The mind itself is a part of the body. The mind itself is part of the body. When the mind ceases to exist, no matter how beautiful and complex the brain may be, ultimately we are not even our brains. We are something else. And that's our greatest error. We see ourselves as being bodies. We see ourselves as being minds. And that means that we lavish all our attention on our brains, on our minds, and even more than our minds, we lavish all our attention on our bodies. We nourish the body, we sustain it, we feed it, we clothe it, we protect it from the elements. Whether we succeed or not, in principle, we are obsessed with the health of our bodies. We dread its sickness. And we aspire to its beautiful health. We do so much for the body. In any country, the two biggest budgets of the government in all countries of the world are defence and healthcare. In some countries, healthcare first. In others, defence first. Defence and healthcare. And spiralling costs of healthcare all over the world concern not only individuals, but whole societies and governments. We worried about the health of our bodies. And there's nothing wrong in that. It's true. But... Realistically, and in moderation, in proportion. I'm speaking from a spiritual Islamic perspective. We as spirits are travellers. We are travellers in this world. And this body is a cage, it's a carriage. It's our means of transport. That's all. But we are not our bodies. We are not even our minds. And shall I tell you how much we are not our bodies? We do everything for the pleasure of the mind and the pleasure of the body. We sin for the pleasure of the body. We sin for the pleasure of the mind. But on the day of reckoning, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give these same limbs and organs the power of speech. And they will testify against the person. Now that's interesting. It's in the Qur'an. And that's interesting. The limbs... And the organs will testify against the person. But we always thought the person was the limbs and the organs. We always thought that. And that's what we always believe. There is a part of us in Surah Qaf, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the qareen. We all have a qareen. A qareen is our... Conjoined twin. He's attached to us. He's with us all the time. We, have, we all have our own little shaitan. Who's with us. That's our qareen. 
And that's also part of فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا We have an angel who whispers good messages to us, and we have our قَرِين who's with us. And that's why we always have these messages. Whenever we wish to do something good, there's always a countering message of negativity, of discouragement, of dissuasion, of doubt. Whenever we do something bad, or we intend to do something bad, again, we always have an inner voice, a conscience, which is warning us, telling us. This is why it's rare for a person to embark on something with total confidence. For there are these messages of positivity and negativity, of good and evil, of sin and of corruption. There are these messages of encouragement and discouragement, of persuasion and dissuasion. And when it, if this is to do with abstaining from sin or doing something good, then these are the messages that are inspired to us and whispered to us from the malaika, the angels, and the contrasting negative sinful messages that we receive from our qareen. And that qareen is such, on the day of reckoning, قَالَ قَرِينُهُ رَبَّنَا مَا أَطْغَيْتُهُ وَلَكِنْ كَانَ فِي ضَلَالٍ بَعِيدٍ Subhanallah. This, you know how far this stretches? We follow others. We follow others. And we always wish to shift blame. That he made me do it, she made me do it. And on the day of judgment, there will be many conversations that take place. In the fire, out of the fire, in the plane of reckoning, before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, at the time of judgment. And many of these conversations are recorded in the Holy Qur'an, in different surahs. One of those conversations will be between groups of people and Allah Azza wa One, some of them will say, رَبَّنَا إِنَّا أَطَعْنَا سَادَتَنَا وَكُبَرَاءَنَا فَأَضَلُّونَ السَّبِيلَا رَبَّنَا آتِهِمْ ضِعْفَيْنِ مِنَ الْعَذَابِ وَلْعَنْهُمْ لَعْنًا كَبِيرًا Oh our Lord, we only followed our leaders and our elders the great ones amongst us. They are the ones who led us into error and led us in, onto the erroneous path. So this day, رَبَّنَا آتِهِمْ ضِعْفَيْنِ مِنَ الْعَذَابِ Oh our Lord, inflict a double punishment on them. وَلْعَنْهُمْ لَعْنًا كَبِيرًا And curse them a great curse. And then the those who are accused of leading them astray will defend themselves and say, we didn't force you or compel you. We merely told you, you followed us. Iblis will do that with creation. Leaders will do that. Elders will do that with their followers. Followers will do that with those who are, whom they are following and emulating. And that's on a wider scale. And then on a more personal scale, we will have another conversation between us and our qareen. And the Qareen will say, even the Qareen, our own little devil, will say, قَالَ قَرِينُهُ رَبَّنَا مَا أَضْغَيْتُهُ Oh my Lord, oh our Lord, I did not lead him astray. I did not cause him to transgress. I did not incite him to rebellion. وَلَكِنْ كَانَ فِي ضَلَالٍ بَعِيدٍ He himself was in clear, clear and distant error. 
Allah subhanahu and and the he will say my qareen led me astray the qareen will say i did not lead him astray he went astray himself Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say la takhtasimu ladayhi do not bicker and argue before me this day waqad qaddamtu ilaykum bil wa'id when i warned you beforehand the message is we are individually responsible no one will answer on our behalf no one will accept accountability on our behalf nations groups everyone will separate from each other and a man's own qareen will separate from him then man is left himself but he won't stop there even his body turns against him his qareen will turn against iblis will turn against the whole of creation that's another conversation Iblis will actually flee and people will try to blame Iblis and Iblis will say to the people I disbelieve in you this day I do kufr with you people will try to blame Iblis Iblis will flee people will try to blame others whom they followed they will abandon them and they will be bickering and there will be bitter exchange of recrimination and censuring and blame and then a man will try to bl- a person will try to blame the qareen the qareen will blame the person even the qareen will be separated and then all a man is left with all a person is left with is himself and what he thinks is himself but even that is divided because before he knows it his own body turns against him on the day when their hands and their tongues and their feet shall testify against them of what they used to do so till now we were thinking that we are our bodies isn't this the hand that we try to look after on these the legs that we try to look after isn't this the body that we did so much for that we nourished we fed we clothed we protected we sheltered aren't we the body no on the day of judgment this body will turn against us so if we are not the bodies and if the bodies will turn against us who are we then who are we even the body will turn against us our hands our feet our tongues so who are we then if we are not these limbs and organs we are the nafs we are the soul we are the spirit recently a couple of months ago actually i i hinted at this before i read a book which to do with neurology neuroscience and in there the authors were discussing how through extensive research and experiments and brain image scanning they discovered that whenever we have an impulse we wish to do something whenever we have a desire or an intention to do something we wish to do something 
the brain sends a signal. To that part of the body. And we're talking about nanoseconds. So we have a desire, we have an intention. So the brain sends a signal to that part of the body. But what they discovered is that once the brain has... Between the actual desire and the intention, there is a short pause, minute. And in that short pause, there is a breaking mechanism, i.e. there is something else which, I, which either allows that thing to continue or stops it. And these authors came to the conclusion that this is something beyond the brain. Now, they give it different names. They give it the name... Some people say it's the mind. Some people say it's the ego. And this is what we say. We say it's a ruh. It's the nafs. Something beyond the body and beyond the mind. Something which ultimately decides... Why is there this discussion? Because in neuroscience, and neurology... That, and in modern philosophy, there's this discussion that ultimately, the things that we do, our choices, our decisions, our actions, are these just all results and effects of the brain? Are these just neurons firing off in the brain? So are we hard hardwired in the brain to do certain things? So there's this craze now where we see everything is attributed to the brain. Someone commits a crime, they're hardwired to commit that crime. The brain makes them do it. Because these are just neurons firing off in the brain. It's beyond their control. But there's a dilemma. From a scientific perspective, there is an increasing, well, there was an increasing belief until recently. That all of this is just to do with the brain. The brain fires off signals and the body reacts. So, for instance, some, uh, th- there were suggestions that if somebody commits a crime, if somebody commits a sin, they are predisposed to committing those sins, to committing those crimes. And how are they predisposed? Because the belief is only in matter. So it's not the body, it must be the brain. But then there's a dilemma. If we are to believe that the, the, it's only the brain that's responsible for these things, then how can we hold anyone responsible? The whole justice system will have to collapse. Because we can all argue that it's just to do with the brain. And sometime after reading that, subhanAllah, came across a verse of the Holy Qur'an. Whilst I was teaching tafsir. أَمْ تَأْمُرُهُمْ أَحْلَامُهُمْ بِهَذَا the verse of the Quran is speaking about one of the earlier generation, uh, speaking about the corrupt people who were sinning. What do their minds, do their brains, do their minds instruct them to committing these things? Or is it 
that nay, they are a people who are transgressing. And what what comes clear from that verse is, that it's not the brain that does it. There is a corruption deep within a person, beyond the mind, beyond the brain, which ultimately incites that person to do things. And that is the nafs. If the nafs is pure, then the person is successful. The nafs is corrupt, the person is corrupt and doomed. So ultimately, we are only the ruh, we are only the spirit. We are. We are not the body, we are not the mind. That's our life. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam, He didn't say, if once I have created the body, fall into prostration before him. Allah azza wa said, فَإِذَا سَوَّيْتُهُ وَنَفَخْتُ فِيهِ مِنْ رُوحِي فَقَعُوا لَهُ سَاجِدِينَ When I have proportioned him, fashioned him and molded him, and I have blown into him of my spirits, then fall into prostration before him. The malaika, the angels, and the rest of creation who prostrated Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam, Allah only told them to prostrate before him after he had breathed the spirit into the body of Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam. That's what really makes a person a person. That's what makes us who we are. That's the, that's the essence of our life. So, if there is beauty, it's the beauty of the Spirit. If there is goodness, it's the goodness of the Spirit. If there is health, it should be the health of the Spirit. And that's, that leads us to the discussion of the word tazkiyah and tadziyah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قَدَ فَلَحْمًا زَكَّاهَا وَقَدْ خَابَ مَنْ دَسَّاهَا Indeed, has succeeded he who purifies the soul. Now, that's a common translation. It's not wrong, it's not incorrect. But it's the secondary translation. It's not the original or the primary translation. So, zakka, zakkaha, who purifies it, the word zakka comes from the word tazkiyah. The, the gerund and the adverb tazkiyah. Zakka yuzakki, tazkiyatan. For those of you who are familiar with Arabic. And tazkiyah is normally translated as purification. Which is correct. It's not incorrect. But it's not the original or the primary meaning. If you understand the original meaning of Dazgia, you will understand its beauty in its connection with the Ruh and the Spirit. Dazgia, which we commonly believe to mean purification, is actually related... Well, it comes from the word zaka yasku zaka. Just like nama yanmu nama'an wa namu'an. Raba yarbu riban. All three words are connected and are very similar. We all know what riba means. Riba means growth. We deposit a hundred, it grows into a hundred and ten. That £10 which we call interest, usually that £10 is growth. And that's what you call riba. That's why Allah says, وَمَا آتَيْتُمْ الْرِبَ الْيَرْبُوَ فِي أَمْوَالِ النَّاسِ فَلَا يَرْبُوَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ Whatever you deposit with people, 
of riba. So that it may grow in the wealth of people. It does not grow with Allah. So riba means growth. And all of these words are similar. Raba yarbu riban nama yanmu namaan numuwan zaka yasku zakaan. All of these three words refer to the same thing, which means growth, flourishing. That's what zakah originally means. And that's where the word tarbiyah comes from. We normally translate tarbiyah as upbringing. So when we say tarbiyah, it's in Asian languages as well, we say tarbiyah. Tarbiyah, we commonly translate as upbringing. But the word tarbiyah is, re- is related to rabba yirbu, just like the word tazkiyah is related to zakah yasku. And what do all of them mean? Growth and flourishing. Do you know where they actually come from? This concept of growth and flourishing. Imagine a plant. If you want to see a plant grow, you have to care for it. And these words are used for plants as well. If you have to care for it. You have to provide it with the right amount of light, heat, shelter, shade, exposure to the elements, protection from cold, heat, wind, in the right place. For the right amount of time, the correct and sufficient nutrients. In fact, advice is given, because these are all living things. Advice is given that if you buy a plant, then when you house it in a new place, then you should be very careful with it, extra careful. In fact, we are advised not to give it nutrients for uh, some while, until it settles and overcomes the stress of moving. And that's a plant. So it's a living thing. And it requires so much love, care and attention. And that's why people talk to that. Some people talk to their plants. But it requires care, affection, attention. Right amount of water, heat, light, nutrients, food. Nourishing. And one has to look after it, care for it. All the time. It's a constant process. It's a devotion. It's a dedication. And that's just to do with the plant. When we use the word tarbiyah for children, tarbiyah doesn't just mean a bringing. Tarbiyah means care, attention, love, affection, nourishment, protection, shelter, food, clothing, everything. How we bring up a child. That's tarbiyah. Tazkiyah is exactly the same thing. It means growth. Zakat means growth. And tazkiyah means to provide that growth. To provide that flourishing. And that means our souls have a life. Just like a plant has a life. Our bodies have a life. More important than even our bodies. Our souls, our arwah, our spirits have a life. And that spirit requires everything that is needed in tarbiyah and tazkiyah. It requires nourishment, food, water, drink, attention, love, affection, nourishment, protection, shade, shelter. Though we may not understand it. 
If we provide all of these things to the soul, to the ruh, what will happen? It will grow, it will flourish, it will be healthy. But if we starve the soul of its food and nourishment, of its nutrients, of its water, if we deprive the soul of its love, care, attention and affection, what will happen? Like any plant, like any living thing, it will become sick, diseased, wither, wane, and eventually die. This is the meaning of Tazkiyah, and it's the meaning of Tadsiyah. In the Quran, we, we hear the word, Am yadussuhu fitturab, ala sa'ama yahkumun, speaking about the common, well, the practice amongst some of the Arab tribes of infanticide, where they would kill their daughters, newborn daughters, for the fear of poverty or shame. So, only some. And they would bury them alive. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to that, Am yadussuhu fitturab, uh, that should he thrust this child and baby into the ground and bury it. So, the meaning of وَقَدْ خَابَ مَنْ دَسَّاهَا And indeed has lost he who dasaha. Corruption is a secondary meaning. The original meaning of dasaha indeed has lost he who buries the soul. And how does a person bury the soul? He kills it off. He kills his own soul and he buries it. It's lost its life. He's deprived it of its life. In his own, by his own hands, he has deprived his own soul of food, of drink, of nourishment, of care and attention. And what has happened? Like a child, like a deprived child, it's grown weak, hungry, thirsty, malfunctioning, suffering from malnutrition. It wanes, it withers, it grows pale, and then it ultimately dies. That's what we do to our ruh. Now these bodies, Allah created our bodies from the dust of the earth. مِنْهَا خَلَقْنَاكُمْ وَفِيهَا نُعِيدُكُمْ وَمِنْهَا نُخْرِجُكُمْ تَارَةً أُخْرَى From it, meaning the dust of the earth, from the earth we created you, and to the earth we shall return you, and from the earth we shall extract you once more. We were created from the earth, so our food comes from the earth. Even if we eat meat, meat, the meat of animals, is nourished on vegetation. So whatever we eat, whether it's meat, whether it's vegetables, ultimately our food, our nutrients, our nourishment all come from the earth. Our water comes from the earth. We may see it as falling from the sky, but we know of the water cycle. Our water comes from the earth. Our food comes from the earth. Because we, our bodies, were created from the earth. We can only be nourished from the same source that we originated from. The ruh is not from the earth. Allah created the ruh in the heavens. So the food and drink and the nourishment of the ruh and of the spirit cannot come from the earth, it can only come from its origin and its source, which is the heavens. So what is the nourishment of the ruh, of the spirit? The holy Qur'an. Religion, spirituality, 
That is the nourishment of the ruh. This is why we are forced in Ramadan, because of our negligence. Allah has guided us. For 11 months of the year, we have been encouraged to fast, but we don't. So for 11 months of the year, whatever we do, for one month of the year, Allah has given us a prescription. Allah has given us a course, a medical course. And what do we do for that one month? Think about it. Do you know what we actually do for that one month, or what we should be doing anyway, for that one month? We shift our attention from feeding, watering, nourishing, and caring for our physical bodies. We shift our attention from that to caring and providing, watering, nurturing, and nourishing our arwah and our spirits. For one whole month. That is why we are told, no food, no drink for the whole day. No fulfilling of your desires and your wants. And instead, do what? Fast. Engage in the remembrance of Allah. Recite the Qur'an as much as possible. The whole month of Ramadan is one of spirituality. It's a month of patience. It's a month of mutual sympathy. It's a month of devotion. It's a month of sacrifice. It's a month of the remembrance of Allah. Rasulullah ﷺ, despite being who he was, of such a pure soul and of such a pure, pure state, he himself would seclude himself from the rest of the world and devote himself to the ibadah and the remembrance of Allah and his dhikr in i'tikaf in the month of Ramadan. So... That is what we have been forced to do by obligation so that we may not starve our soul and our ruh altogether. This is, that's our real life. We are not our bodies, we are not our minds. Another interesting thing about, about our bodies, our skin is shed and replaced in its entirety each month. Every month we actually have new skin. Within us, within us, our organs, they may remain the same in their form and in their structure, but the constituents of each of those limbs and organs and even the inner organs constantly change. Imagine a whirlpool. A whirlpool retains its shape. It remains as a whirlpool. But for every second and moment, water is coming in and water is going out. <coughs> Never do you have the same water in that whirlpool. But the whirlpool retains its form and its shape. We are like whirlpools. As they say, we're made from the stars. Everything passes through us. So even our skin changes on a monthly basis. And that means gradually. So minutes by minutes, moments by moment, we shed our skin, we, develop, we grow new skin. And that means even our skin in its entirety changes on a monthly basis. And that's the same for all of our organs. Even our brains, the most complex organism known to man, even our brains, shells are constantly shedding and being replaced. Even in our brains. Cells born, die. There are factories within us that produce blood cells. And these blood cells, cells of all kinds, and these cells have a lifespan. A very short lifespan. And they live 
they grow, they reach the end, the peak of their growth, they perform their functions and duties, and they die. And then they are replaced. There are millions of living organisms, if not billions in our body. But they're never the same, subhanAllah. Never ever the same. Within one person, we are like whirlpools through which life flows and continues to flow in and out. That's our body. We don't have the same body on a monthly basis. How can we claim that we are the body? There is only one constant in us. And that is the ruh. That is what requires our attention. That is what requires our food and drink. That is what requires nourishment. That's who we are. Imagine a person who buys a car. It doesn't even have to be that expensive. And he starves himself, but he's forever polishing the car. He actually deprives himself of water, but keeps a full tank of petrol. He dresses in one rag and exposes himself to the cold. But he makes sure that he, his leather seats are polished. What would you call such a person? Unfit to own a car for one. And we would question his sanity. Why? Because he's paying attention to his means of transport. He's paying more attention to the ride than the rider. But aren't we doing exactly the same? This body is our ride. This is our car. This is our donkey, our mule, our horse. (coughs) A mule is a mule. Imagine. Unfortunately, the donkey is not considered, well, it's not held in great esteem in some cultures, especially in Africa and in the Middle East and in the Far East. So we know what we say about donkeys. Kota, Gada, Himar. And yet, ultimately, this body, it's a carriage. It's a means of transport. This is our ride. And yet we're doing exactly the same as that person polishing his car and unclothing himself. Having a full tank of petrol but actually starving himself of food and drink. We're doing exactly the same thing. We're paying all our attention on the ride, and we're ignoring the rider. We're neglecting the rider. And that's what makes a person a person. As in the hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَنْظُرُ إِلَىٰ صُوَرِكُمْ وَأَمْوَالِكُمْ وَلَكِنْ يَنْظُرُ إِلَىٰ قُرُوبِكُمْ وَأَعْمَالِكُمْ Allah does not look at your figures and your appearances and your wealth. Rather, Allah only looks at your hearts and your deeds. And in a hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Ala inna fil jasad al-mudghatan idha sa'n The hadith of Al-Nu'man ibn Bashir radiyallahu an Very authentic hadith recorded by most of the famous authors of hadith. Ala inna fil jasad al-mudghatan idha salahat صلح الجسد كله وإذا فسدت فسد الجسد كله ألا وهي القلب 
Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that, No, lo and behold, in the body there is a piece of flesh, which if pure, then the whole body is pure, and which if corrupt, then the whole body is corrupt. And Rasulullah, and what, what is the Allah wa al qalb? Lo and behold, know that it is the heart. And we may think of the heart as just this pumping organ, but this is a metaphor. Through the heart we mean our arwah, our spirit, our ruh. We, we lavish so much attention to our bodies. Look how what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the munafiqoon. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. I explained this in my commentary of the hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu a few months ago, before Ramadan. Surah Al-Munafiqoon was revealed in Al-Madinat Al-Munawwarah. And it was to do with the hypocrites. And the leader of the hypocrites was Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. Now, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was an Arab from the Khazraj tribe, and he was actually a born leader. And let me explain how. Prior to the arrival of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he was on the verge of being crowned the king of Medina. They had actually prepared a crown for him. And this is why he was so bitter on a personal level, against Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam because he felt along alongside his enmity and his displeasure and his unwillingness to embrace he also pe- felt a very strong personal animosity towards Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam because he felt that he had usurped his authority his kingdom and he had he had robbed him of his monarchy and of his crown right on the verge of being crowned the king of Medina now Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, prior to, before that, they wouldn't they ha, they didn't have a monarchy, a monarchical system. They actually had what they would call a federation of tribes. So each member of the tribe would be considered well, each tribe would have its great person as a leader, and then you had a confederation of these tribes, so the leaders would gather on an equal basis. And even amongst those, he rose to the top and he was about to be crowned the king of Medina. So the point I'm making is, he rose through merit. He didn't inherit this from his father. He he rose through merit. How? He was a born leader. And in fact, he, he he was a well endowed personality in many ways. How? He was handsome. Strikingly handsome, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was strikingly handsome. He was so handsome that he would speak to someone and address someone, he would captivate the entire audience, not just with his speech, but with his appearance. So his, his appearance was bewitching. He was strikingly handsome. He was of a tall, strong, healthy build. He was prepossessing, captivating. Handsome. When he spoke, he was articulate, smooth, eloquent. He had na- he had a natural charisma, and he was able to bewitch entire audiences. A thousand people left the city, the center of Medina, in the morning of the Battle of Uhud. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul led a faction 
amongst them. And he deliberately, right towards the end, he spoke to a number of the tribes. And he, in a few words, managed to convince them to abandon Rasulullah and turn back out of a thousand, three hundred turned back towards the center of the city. And that was all done by Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Surul. At the last minute of the Battle of Uhud, he managed to convince almost one-third of the army to turn back and abandon Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa That was Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Surul. And Allah describes him in the following words. وَإِذَا رَأَيْتَهُمْ تُعْجِبُكَ أَجْسَامُهُمْ وَإِنْ يَقُولُوا تَسْمَعْ لِقَوْلِهِمْ when you see them, their bodies astound you. And when they speak, you listen attentively to their speech. But Allah says, Within, they are like propped up planks of wood. Imagine rotting wood, which is no good for anything anymore. It can't hold up anything else. Forget holding up anything else. It itself is now propped up by something else. Because it's rotting from within. And it's about to disintegrate and collapse. And it's held up by something else. And it's propped up by something else. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, despite his charisma, despite his beauty, despite his prepossessing handsomeness, despite his articulacy, despite his leadership qualities, despite his speech, despite his smooth talk, despite all the qualities that we aspire to in a person, we all want to be handsome, prepossessing, captivating, intelligent, articulate, and we all wish to be leaders. We all wish to be followed. Allah says, despite having all of those qualities, his reality was, he's about as good as rotting wood which is propped up. Because it's to do, it's not to do with the body. It's to do with the ruh and the spirit. This is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَنَفْسٍ وَمَا سَوَّاهَا And by the soul and by that Allah who, who proportioned the soul and then inspired it to it's good to, to its corruption and to its taqwa. I mentioned earlier that I, why do I translate taqwa as God consciousness? Taqwa is one of those unique Arabic words which can't be translated into a single word, as I've said on many occasions before. Normally we translate it as a fear of Allah, but that's just a partial translation. The most succinct definition of taqwa is to guard oneself from the displeasure of Allah by guarding oneself from the disobedience of Allah. That's the meaning of taqwa. And that means being conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at all times, in all situations, at all moments. So that's taqwa. Allah then says, indeed successful is he who gives growth to the soul who allows the soul to flourish, and indeed has lost he who kills and buries the soul. That's the true mark of success and failure. If we wish to succeed, let's focus on the ruh. If we, if we truly fear loss, then let's not fear the loss of our bodies. Rather, let's fear the loss of our spirits. 
And I'll end there. We'll move on to the final part. The next part is simply uh, a brief recollection of the story of the Prophet Salih alayhi salam and the Prophet Thamud, uh, sorry, the Prophet Salih alayhi salam and the Qawm, the people of Thamud to whom he was sent. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that كَذَّبَ الثَّمُودُ بِالتَّغْوَاهَا Thamud, the people, they rejected either the message of Allah and the messengers because of their because of their rebellion. This is what happens. When individuals are corrupt, society can become corrupt. We are all society is simply a collection of the individuals. And individual corruption can lead to collective corruption. Collective corruption can lead a person to becoming to people becoming blind to the message of Allah. So much so that look what happened with Thamud. Thamud were a people who lived in an area in central Arabia known as Hijr. Indeed, the people of Hijr, they rejected the messengers. And Hijr is actually, again, when I commented on the hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik, and I hinted then that when the Prophet ﷺ in the ninth year of Hijrah traveled north towards Tabuk, he passed by because the, the, the Hijr is actually in an area between Al Madinat Al Munawwara and Tabuk. He passed by that area and he told the Sahaba radiallahu anhum to pass by quickly and swiftly and weeping. And if they could not pass by weeping, then with the appearance of weeping as, as an act of remorse and contrition and repentance to Allah, lest Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said the same punishment that befell the people of Thamud not before you. So long after Rasulullah passed through the valley, valleys of the people of Thamud hurriedly, lest the same punishment that befell them befalls Rasulullah and the noble Sahaba. That's how fearful he, the Messenger of Allah, was. So they resided in that area. The, the people of Thamud were very strong, powerful, cultivated. They carved and hewed homes out of rocks. Allah sent the Prophet Salih to them. And he invited them to the worship of Allah. And to, to Thamud, we sent Salih, their own brother, one of them, Salih. And he said, oh my people, worship Allah, for you have no God besides Allah. But the people rejected him. They mocked him, as is the tradition with the Anbiya alayhim salam. They mocked him, they ridiculed him, they called him a madman, they questioned his sanity. And then, eventually, in their belligerence, some of them said that we demand a miracle from you. And they demanded a specific miracle in their sarcasm. They said, you see that boulder, we want you to produce a she-camel with a child from the boulder. So Allah subhanahu so Salih alayhi Prophet Sayyidina Salih alayhi salam prayed to Allah and said, Oh Allah, produce this miracle for them. So the boulder split and a she camel with a child came out before them. And the boulder sealed again. That was the miraculous she camel that's referred to in these verses of the Quran. So they were astounded. But even then, only some believed, despite beholding and witnessing a miracle, when the heart, when the soul is blind, then it blinds everything. 
When the spirit is blind, it blinds everything. They witnessed and beheld the miracle with their own eyes, yet they refused to believe. And then, because they refused to believe, they continued to persecute Sayyidina Salih alayhi salam with their evil words. And then, their rebellion and their transgression led them to even harming the she-camel of Allah, because it's referred to as the camel of Allah. Naqatullah. Allah says, the she-camel of Allah. It's just merely an attribution of honor and distinction. So what they did is that they plotted to harm the she-camel. The she-camel, again, this was a test for them. Prophet ﷺ told them, look, do not harm the she-camel. Let it graze freely. Let it drink freely. So, But they refused to do that. And then eventually they plotted and they went and hamstrung the camel. And the meaning of hamstringing the camel is that they injured, they hamstrung the camel and uh, these larger animals, they would normally hamstring them. And then, uh, the, especially the camels, would hamstring them uh, from their forelegs. And when the camel would fall on its forelegs, it would make it easier for them to carry out the slaughter in order to kill the animal. So hamstringing led to slaughter, the slaughtering the animal. So they would refer to the killing or the slaughtering of the animal by way of saying, we hamstrung it, because that was the first step and first stage. So the meaning of fa'aqaruha, they hamstrung the camel, is not that they simply injured it, but they hamstrung it and then they killed it. So they killed the she-camel. Prophet Saleh told them that Allah warned you that do not harm this she-camel, because it was a miracle that you yourselves demanded. Now that you have harmed it, this was a test, you failed in your test, wait for three days. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rained down his punishment. The Prophet Salih and those who believed with him were led to safety, and the rest who were guilty, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala punished them. And the manner of punishing was as follows. Allah says, كَذَّبَتْ ثَمُودُ بِتَغْوَاهَا Thamud rejected i.e. the messengers and the message, because of its rebellion. When its most wretched one rose, the meaning of this is, when they plotted, they were egging each other on, and saying, who will go, who will go and do this? So, they, they were all participants in it, but ultimately the one who carried out the deed was the most wretched one who volunteered to commit this crime and heinous sin against the miracle of Allah. So he rose. So he was the most wretched. إِذِنْ بَعْثَ أَشْقَاهَا When he, the most wretched of them rose, فَقَالَ لَهُمْ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ Even then the Messenger of Allah warned them, نَاقَةَ اللَّهِ وَسُقْيَاهَا Beware of the she-camel of Allah and its drinking. But they rejected him. And they hamstrung the she-camel. So Allah, the meaning of dam-dam, dam-dam, the meaning of dam-dam, is to cause something to collapse and seal something else, i.e. bury it. So to completely close. So it's, it's difficult to translate it directly, the word, فَدَمْدَمْ عَلَيْهِمْ رَبُّهُمْ You can translate it as Allah overwhelmed them with punishment or دَمْدَمْ عَلَيْهِمْ رَبُّهُمْ Allah covered them with punishment. I gave a loose translation of فَدَمْدَمْ عَلَيْهِمْ رَبُّهُمْ Allah crushed them in punishment. Their Lord crushed them in punishment. بِذَمْبِهِمْ Because of their sin. فَسَوَّاهَا 
and he made the punishment equal. I, they were all participants in it, not just the most wretched one. And then after having punished them and leveled their dwellings and their inhabitation, Allah says, وَلَا يَخَافُ عُقْبَاهَا And he, Allah, does not fear the consequences of that punishment. And that's a warning of Allah Azza wa Jal. He, Allah Azza wa Jal, gives respite. Allah delays, but He does not leave. Allah delays, but He does not leave or abandon. And Allah will take people to account, hold them to account, and will take them to task for their deeds and their misdeeds. And how is the story of Thamud and Salih? The people of Thamud and the Prophet Salih, how is that related to the nafs? Well, this is it. Individual corruption ultimately leads to collective corruption. Individual purity leads to collective purity. And this is why one of the messages, we are always worried about changing others. We can't change others. No one can change anybody else. Ultimately, we can only change ourselves. We can only truly change ourselves. I read a quote the other day by an older person. Well, it's a quote of a wise old man who said, well, a wise old person who said, when I was younger, I wanted to and I attempted to change the whole world. But I failed. So now I only concern myself with changing myself. It's true. And the message is, if you change yourself, you will have a positive impact on those around you. By way of example, we can only change ourselves. We do not know how another person's mind works, or their body works, or their spirit works. Nothing's guaranteed. Nothing. About another person. We have no control, no jurisdiction over anybody else. Father has no control over son or daughter, let alone spouse. And that's why on the day of reckoning, يَوْمَ يَفِرُّ الْمَرْءُ مِنْ أَخِيهِ وَأُمِّهِ وَأَبِيهِ وَصَاحِبَتِهِ وَبَنِيهِ لِكُلِّ مْرِئٍ مِّنْهُمْ يَوْمَ إِذٍ شَأْنٌ يُغْنِيهِ On the day when a man shall flee from his brother, from his mother, from his father, from his spouse, wife, from his children. On that day, each one of them will be in such a state that it will render him heedless and neglectful of everybody else. And this is why, speaking of the Prophet the Prophet Nuh his wife rebelled against him. His son rebelled against him. The Prophet Lut his wife rebelled against him. Prophet Nuh his own son rebelled against him. So we cannot change anyone. We are responsible for ourselves. If the individual is successful and is pure of spirit, this will lead to a collection of pure spirits. Individual purity leads to collective purity. Individual corruption leads to ultimately leads to collective corruption. And that will lead to the consequence of the people of Thamud. That's why the two are actually related. And there's one final message in this. These are the Makkan Surahs. And the Makkan Surahs were revealed 
many of the Meccan surahs have these stories of the former prophets والسلام, and their peoples as a subtle warning to the Quraysh. Because the Quraysh were familiar with these stories. They were aware of the accounts of the people of Ad and Thamud and the prophets Hud and Salih. So this was a reminder to them that you reject the messenger, you reject the message of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. You are nobody. Look at the mighty people of Ad and look at the wealthy and advanced people of Thamud. When they rejected their Prophet Salih and Hud alayhim salam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed them in this manner. What are you, O Quraysh, if you continue to resist and reject the message of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and persecute him? The same fate may befall you. And in it, there was consolation and comfort to the Sahaba radiallahu anhum in the early days of Islam when they were a very small minority disbanded, persecuted, driven, held in contempt, powerless in Makkah al-Muqarramah. This was a consolation for them. That your example with the Messenger ﷺ is just like the example of the former Messengers ﷺ with their small band of followers. Ultimately, the end consequence is for those who have taqwa. So this was a consolation and comfort for them and a message for them to remain perseverant and patient and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will continue to guide and ultimately deliver them. This is the message and the tafsir of Surah Al-Shams. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us amongst those who are successful by way of allowing their souls to grow and to flourish and to have life, full life. And that Allah does not make us of those who lose, who lose by stunting the growth of their souls and thereby eventually killing their own souls and burying them. May Allah make us amongst those whose hearts are guided to the taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and are protected from the fujur their corruption وصلى الله وسلم على عبده ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on double zero double four. One two one double seven one three triple seven, or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions. All rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting, or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright. <laughs>